And we've been working through the series. This is the last and the final um, commandment. And what we've found and what we've said every week is that for Christians, the idea of us looking at ourselves in a very deep way and actually asking hard questions about um, what we do, not only externally, but even what our minds are doing and what our hearts are doing is not something that we should be afraid of. Because even when we find that there is more brokenness and there's more sin there than we first imagined, what we find is that Jesus' love for us and His grace toward us is actually bigger and deeper and better than we had ever thought. And so this morning, hopefully we'll see that again as we think about this last commandment, do not covet. I do want to read again. Um, you don't have to turn back there, but I'll Paul before I pray from Philippians, because we're going to be using this passage as well as we think about this. And Paul says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Amen. This is God's word, and he gives it to us this morning because he loves us, and he wants us to know him, and this is how he directly reveals himself to us as in his word. So let me pause and give thanks for that and ask that he would help us to understand. Father, we thank you that you come to us not when we have cleaned ourselves up, not when we are strong, but you, you find us in our weakness and you find us in our helplessness and you move towards us, offering us forgiveness and offering us Grace And Father, we confess this morning, and we have confessed, that we run away from that because what we want to be is we want to be strong and we want to be independent of you. And that first commandment that says, have no other gods before you, we wrestle with it every moment because we look for other things in our life that we think will bring us contentment and satisfaction and peace and joy and hope. And sometimes it leaves us on a never-ending, spiraling chase to find that thing. And yet, Father, you have come to us this morning, and it's no mistake that we are here, that we are here this morning to hear your word out of your own providence over our lives, that you are sovereign over our lives, and you've put us here this morning because what you want to do is speak to us in love. So give us open eyes and open ears that we may see and hear. We pray that you would open our hearts that we might understand that we might receive in your love that you are offering us to this this morning. Your spirit may do that for us in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. I read a book this week uh, by a man who for the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, I've really greatly admired. And he's a man, he's actually, this sounds really nerdy, so just bear with me. He's, he's actually a Christian philosopher. His name's Nicholas Wolterstorff. And He's getting into his late 80s, and so some of his friends had written him, you need to write down your life. You need to write a memoir of your life. And so he did that. 
And he really had an extraordinary life. He, he was born to Dutch immigrants. They settled in a town in Minnesota of about 200 people. Um, he worked really as a, as on farms most of his life, but he really had a brilliant mind. And he ended up going on to get degrees from Harvard and then teaching at Yale and then teaching in Europe. And it was really interesting to look at this, this man who came from practically nothing and the way God has used him. Of tragedy, his mother died when he was only about two. His son died in a climbing accident when he was... And he's somebody who... And it was towards the end of this memoir that he told something about his life that you thought he would have told at the very beginning. But it really was on the last couple of pages that he told about an incident when, that when he was three years old, when he got pneumonia. And years later, his father told him, you know, we really thought that you were going to die. It was really touch and go. And you were in the hospital for a long time, and we really thought uh, that they lose you. And so at the very end of reflecting on his life, he tells that, and then he says these words, the realization washes over me that the life recalled in these pages might not have been. And with that realization, a deep, deep sense of gratitude for having been granted a spell in this world of wonders. The upbringing, the talents, the interests, the loves, the opportunities, they were making, they were given to me. I received them. So what I feel now is gratitude, deep gratitude for the course of my life. It's really strange. It's strange to look at your life, the life that you as an individual have been given. None of us have made our lives. None of us have caused ourselves um, to be born and to exist, chose where we were born. None of us chose our parents, that all of us, if we are alive and sitting in this room right now, we have been given life, and we've been given a specific life, and a particular life, strange life, and sometimes a tragic life, and sometimes a very difficult life, and sometimes a very easy life, and sometimes a very glorious life, but we didn't choose our life. And it's often strange to think about your life and to, and to look about what it is compared to maybe what it might have been or what it could have been. And I think for a lot of us, it's not until something big happens, something hard happens, or maybe it's when it's the end of our life that we actually look back at our life and start to see that there is a God who was doing something in my life that I could not have imagined in the moment. That maybe tragedy strikes and it causes us to look at our life in a different way, but maybe it's just the years accumulate and if you are somebody who believes in God, you look back on your life and you start to say, in that moment, I wanted a different life. But now I am grateful for the life that now I see that God imagined. Somebody asked me recently um, what, how I've been affected or what I've learned over the last few years that I've been coming here to visit at the rescue mission. And it was a funny question I had, that I hadn't really, I don't think I'd answered that question before, and I had to think about it for a minute. And I said, you know, one of the things that I have learned 
from the men who have come through this place and that I continue to learn over and over again is I, I have learned gratitude. And it doesn't come easy to me. And I was thinking in particular of a man that I met here not long ago, and as I listened to his story, what I found is that he had been arrested years ago for a crime that was pretty petty. And he got trapped in a system of incarceration. And even though he should never have been in prison as long as he was, he continued to be cycled through that system to where much of his adult life was consumed in the prison system. Got out, there was nothing. And he met hardship and he met illness. And the thing that struck me about this man, as I'm listening to his story, I'm becoming angry for him. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the years that were lost and I'm thinking about how difficult that must have been. But as he tells it, there is a smile on his face. And every time I saw him since then, there was a sense of gratitude that is, frankly, foreign to me. How would you be so thankful for your life? Well, what does all that have to do with coveting? You might ask, well, everything to do with coveting. Coveting is not a word that, that we use every day. It's not a word that's pretty common in our vocabulary. And so I'm going to give you the most simple definition of coveting that I could possibly think of. To covet, wish for a different life. To covet is to wish that my life were not my life. It's to wish that if I had what other people had, my life would be better. To covet for another life, a different life. And the reason that God commands us not to covet is because to wish for a different life is to say to God, who gives us life, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. If you were a good God, if you were a God who really knew about me, I would not be in the situations that I'm in. Tanner pointed out to, this is, a, this is the perfect bookend to the Ten Commandments because the first one says, don't trust anything else but me. And the last one says, don't trust anything else but me. Eyes upon me. It may not look good. It may not look like what you thought it was going to look like. It never does. And he says, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me with your life. Paul himself said that it wasn't until he understood this commandment that he actually understood that he was a sinner. You see, up until that point, and this is true maybe for, for others, that up until that point, Paul, who was kind of a perfectionist, had followed the law very particularly. And so on the outside of Paul's life, he had done everything well. He could, he could commandments and he could say, well, I technically have not murdered, I don't steal, I don't lie, I haven't committed adultery, I go to church, I honor God, I don't worship idols, I've done all of these things. And he gets to the last commandment, and other things are external, and he says, externally, I have checked the box, and he gets to the last one, and it's completely internal. And he says that it killed him, Right? Which is what the law should do. 
The law comes and it slays us. And what does it slay in us? It slays in us any idea that we in and of ourselves are good. And you say, well, that sounds depressing, preacher, but I'm a sinner. You will never find freedom and hope in life until you get comfortable with that. The law slayed Paul so that he might not find hope in himself because there was no hope in Paul, no hope in Tim, and there is no hope in you. And it brings us to Jesus, the only place where we might find life. See, you can go on coveting all day long and nobody will know. You can wish your life was not your life. You can look at other people's stuff and say, I wish that's what I had. You can do it all day long. And on the outside, you can have your Bible and you can kind of be like the perfect little Christian. And this is why God saves, I believe, this one for last. Because it is, in in a sense, it's a nail in the coffin. To any thought that I can somehow manage my life in a way that purely and without his help pleases him. That I need something better than that. That I need something bigger than that. That I need grace. Because what we find is that we all covet constantly. We wish our lives were different, right? You may have wished morning when you woke up. You certainly wished that at some point this week. Our life would be better if it looked like somebody else's life. And what we're saying is that we are disgusted God. What we're saying is that we doubt his goodness. What we're saying is that we doubt his providence. That we actually think that our lives would be a lot better if maybe I looked a little different or if I had um, skin or if I had a different personality or if I had a different job or if I had this guy's checking account instead of my checking account, then my life would actually be better. Then I would be more content. To think that there is something that I currently don't have that if I had, it would make me at peace. And that is a lie. That's a lie. So we're guilty, so so what? What I want to think about this morning is what Paul tells us in Philippians. That Paul tells us that there is a different way. And it's a different way that he has actually learned. And Paul learned it the hard way. And I think tell us is that we all kind of have to learn it the hard way as well. And this is what I want to leave us with in this series. That for us to see our sin is okay. It's good. That we don't have to go around, around everything is fine. That it's good for us to come to the law and for that law to slay us and for the law like a scalpel to cut deep into our hearts so that we see the the sickness that is there. Because what Paul wants us to see, Scripture wants us to see, what the Holy Spirit right now wants you to see, that there is a Savior. And to be known by Him and to be loved by Him is to be set free. So that you might actually love your life. So that you might actually have gratitude for it. So that you might actually find contentment. And Paul says that this love of Jesus, it actually brings the that you are looking for in somebody else's life. In somebody else's circumstance. In somebody else's job. Paul says it's only found here. So this morning, I want to ask three questions. What, what then is contentment? 
How do we learn it? And why should we be content? What is it? How do we learn it? And why should we be content? He tells us that contentment is a secret. He says, I've learned the secret of contentment. And what is a secret? A secret is something that not everybody else knows. Right? A secret is something that somebody else has to tell you because it was you previously. And Paul says, I've learned a secret and I want to share the secret with you. It's not common knowledge. And Paul is saying is that contentment is a learned secret that makes us content, so satisfied on the inside that it remains that way even when things go poorly for us on the outside. Paul is saying is a learned secret of being so satisfied on the inside that that remains even when everything on the outside is not going the way that we want it to go. I want to know that secret. I imagine you do. And we might simply say it another way, that contentment is simply to trust God with our lives. It's to simply acknowledge, this is the life you gave me. And you are good. And you didn't make a mistake. He made each one of you in this room in his image. And yet he made each one of you different. And with different circumstances and with different backgrounds. Some of them incredibly hard, right? But this is the life that he gave you. And the world tells us this. The world tells us if you play your cards right, if you cross your T's and dot your I's, then you might end up in a place where you'll find contentment in this life if you just do it the right way. You'll end up with the the right job. You'll end up in the right place. And then you'll be content. Now, we probably all thought that way to wonder. Some of us are thinking that way right now. And maybe that's even the reason we're in church. We think maybe in church I can learn to do the right things in the right way. And then I'll get to the right place where I can finally be content. That is a lie that we don't want to give up believing. And it's a lie that drives our life and it dictates our lives. And many of us think that we'll be content maybe if I just get through this particular season of life. You ever just kind of wish an entire year? If I could just get rid of this year and move on to the next year. I remember when this last year rolled around, New Year's, I I remember people say, so glad that year's over. And I I know I've said things like that as well, but what are we really saying? That somewhere in the future, if I can control it enough, I can make myself be at peace by simply orchestrating the circumstance of life in a particular way, and then I'll be content. And that's a lie. Contentment is a secret. It's a secret that God teaches us. And it's something that stays there through good years bad years. And it's something that God even uses the Word to teach us. He uses the hardest situations to teach us. Because He's a God who brings goodness out of tragedy and evil. He's not the author of them, but He brings goodness out of them. Some of you may have heard the, the name before, Horatio Spafford. I've told this story before. Horatio Spafford lived about 150 years ago. He, was, um, he lived in Chicago. He was a lawyer. He had done really well for himself. He was very prominent. 
Um, he was well known throughout the city. He was well connected with throughout the owned a lot of property uh, throughout the city of Chicago. He had a wife named Anna. They had five children, four girls, and a little boy. And they were also believers. They they believed in Jesus and they loved. And by all accounts, his life was pretty happy and it had gone pretty smoothly and it seemed like everything had kind of gone his way, that he had had somewhat of a charmed life. But all of that took a drastic turn in 1870, his only son died at the age of four. And not long after the death of his son, fire in Chicago swept through the city and it wiped out most of what he owned. And so what he found, all of his investment, all of his money was tied up in his property and his property was gone. And he lost, in that year, he lost his son and then he lost most of his wealth. And so to sort of give his family a break from this, he decided to take them to England. And um, they were going to travel with the, the, the famous preacher D.L. Moody, they, who he was friends with. And he was preaching in England, and he said, we're going to go and be his guest. And so they go to take this voyage overseas, no airplanes yet, go to get on a boat to go overseas. And about the time they're going to leave, he gets called back to Chicago on business. And he says, y'all go ahead and I'll meet you 10 days later. I'll take this next boat and meet you later. And on the ninth day, he gets a telegram from his wife. Two words. Saved alone. And see, what happened is his family's boat had collided with another boat in the Atlantic. And all four of his daughters... And his wife was the only one left. And so he gets on the next boat to go and join his wife. And as he's traveling across the Atlantic, the same route that he had lost his four daughters on, he goes to his cabin and he writes this hymn that many of you have probably sung dozens of times before. When peace like attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Contentment is learned. It's a learned secret of being so satisfied on the inside that you remain that way in a deep sense, even when things do not go the way that you want them to go. Only I want us to be honest with ourselves for a minute because we can hear a story like that and we want to write it off. But this man wrote that hymn in the midst of one of the most horrific things that you could possibly imagine. Where was that coming from? And I want to ask the question for us, what do we think will be enough? What do you think will bring you contentment? What is it that we really trust? I can guarantee with all certainty that it will not be enough to actually make us content. Whatever that thing is that we think will make us content will not make us Why? Because what Paul is saying is that true contentment can't be gained by adding something to your life from somebody else's life that God has not currently given you, that true contentment is a state of mind that's not 
by, by circumstance or poverty or wealth or health. And Paul says that there is a contentment available to us that is not found in this world. That there's a contentment that can be had even when you are stressed of the things that other people think will bring them contentment in their life. So how do we get that? How do we get that contentment? Paul says that it has to be learned. That it's achieved overnight. So how do we learn the secret of contentment? When we first hear that something can be learned, maybe our minds, maybe your minds like mine, will think, well, let me get to work on learning it. I want to learn it now. I want to get it done now. Do something. I know how to do something, so I'm going to do something in order to learn this. But that's not the way that it works. Contentment is wrapped up more in being than in doing. So listen to what one pastor said. I think he said it much better than I can. He said, Christians must contentment the old-fashioned way. We have to learn it. We cannot do contentment. It has to be taught to us by God. We are schooled in it. It is part of the process of being transformed through the renewing of our mind. commanded of us, but paradoxically, it is done to us, not by us. It is not the product of a series of actions, but of a renewed and transformed character. How do we learn to be content? The only way is that we must enroll in the divine school in which we are instructed by biblical teaching and providential experience. So it's not something that we can do. It's something that is shaped by the Holy Spirit through the experiences through which we're going while we're continually sitting under God and under His Word and listening to Him and trusting Him. So how do I know if I'm becoming more content? Let me give you two ways. They're really simple. And the first one is this. Until we realize that on our own we are incapable of contentment, we will never be capable of contentment. As I know I'm growing more content is that what I realize is that on my own, I am incapable of contentment. I cannot do it. I can't fashion it in my life. I can't shape it in my life. I can't control my, can't control my circumstances to such a degree that I will be content. And until And when we start to realize that we are incapable of contentment, is the very point in which we actually start to become capable of contentment. Now, this is what Jesus was always trying to teach his disciples. You see, Jesus had these men kind of following him along. He had these women following him along. He was always teaching them. He was always saying things to them. But he was mostly doing them and putting them in situations that they can't control, like a boat in the middle of a storm that they can't stop, like a shore with a demon-possessed man who looks like he's about to kill them, is doing this intentionally. He puts them in these situations intentionally. And I'm sure what they're thinking is, I wish my life looked different like this because I'm about to die or I'm about to be killed by this crazy man or they're about to stone us. And Jesus keeps bringing those situations over and over and over again. And then he'll say things to them like this that helps them to see what I cannot do is try to find contentment on my own in this world. And he'll say things like this, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So to grow discontent 
with the world is not to hate the world, but to grow discontent with the world actually frees you up to love the world. So Jesus is driving out of his disciples any thought in their mind that in this world I can find contentment to use people. They're going to try to put themselves in more comfortable situations. They're going to avoid suffering. They're going to avoid conflict. All the hard things that don't lead to their, in their minds what contentment looks like. But finding contentment somewhere else frees them to enter into the very situations that beforehand they would have wanted to avoid. It frees them to not fear to move into the world with boldness and to actually love the world. Paul writes to Timothy. You know, Paul was training Timothy in the pastorate. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, Godliness with contentment is a... For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. So we know we're becoming more content in Jesus when we become less content that I can somehow find contentment in the world through my own means, through better circumstances, through the right friends, through the right job. That I come to the say, I am incapable of contentment. We become capable of contentment. More content, simply, secondly, is when we become more satisfied in Jesus. I read one woman this way. She says, there's no man that can love me enough, no child that can need me enough, no job that can pay me enough, no experience that can satisfy me enough. There is only Jesus. That's a free person. Not bound by wanting to find the perfect man who can love them. They're not bound by being obsessed over their children because they want their children to need them. They're not bound by finding the perfect job because the perfect job is going to satisfy them. They have found is otherworldly, that is internal, that is unchangeable, despite all of those things. That's a free person. What does it mean to be more satisfied in Jesus? Horatio Spafford said it this way in verse 3 of the hymn, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. That even when we discover content, and even when we discover our covetous hearts, the very thing that brings contentment is we found that that is exactly what Jesus came to die for. That Jesus came to die for even my lack able to be content in Him. And oddly enough, that makes me more content. The more that I realize that Jesus died for the very worst part of me, the more that I love Jesus. And I don't need other things. find satisfaction in Him and in Him alone. The secret for Paul was the same. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And yet in Jesus, what Paul found was the opposite of what he deserved. He was a persecutor of the church imprisoning people, women and children who trusted in Jesus. And yet Jesus met Paul and offered Paul forgiveness. He received the opposite of what he deserved and because of that he knew that he was now son. 
and that nothing can change that. And so it didn't matter, he says, if I'm rich or if I'm poor, if I have food and clothing that Jesus promised that he will give to me because he says, he, 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 look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. If they have those things, I'm going to give out. And he says, if I have those things, I know that he's providing for me because he said that he would, and I can be content in that. He was content and satisfied and happy because he knew that God loved him and wanted what it was. So let me end with this. Why should we be content? You know, if coveting is wishing that we had a different life, the odd thing is that for a Christian, you do. You have a different life. You have another's life. And what Paul said is that coveting slayed me because I wanted a different life and I wanted the other things of other people, but what I realized is that now hidden in Christ. I now have Jesus' life. And what the gospel, the reason that the gospel is the gospel, which means good news, is because it's not a proclamation that comes to you and tells you what you need to do in order to own life. It's a gospel that comes to you. It's good news that is proclaimed to you, that declares to you that you who are guilty have now been declared not guilty. But more than that, you have now been declared righteous because your life is now with Christ's life. Your life is now hidden with Christ. I've probably used this half a dozen times, and you've probably heard me say it half a dozen times, but I want to leave you with Jonathan Edwards' first sermon. He was a theologian and a preacher, probably one of the greatest this country has ever seen, and he wrote his first sermon when he was 17 years old, and it was answering the question, why should the Christian be happy, or why should the Christian be content? And he gave three that I think about all the time, and he says, the first, and they're rooted in Scripture, because the first one is this, because our bad things will turn out for good. That is a promise from Scripture. Now, we can use it in a trite way sometimes, or somebody's just kind of throw that at them, but it's true that for a Christian, even the bad things are, in God's mysterious way, they are going to turn out for good. If you are in Christ, even some of the most horrible things that we've experienced are going to be redeemed in ways that we could never have imagined. Because our bad things will turn out for secondly, because our truly good things cannot be taken from us. The reason that we can be content is because the things that are truly making us content, they can't be taken from us, and you can't mess them up. You have an inheritance that is given to you through the resurrection of His body, and it is a living hope. And it can't be defiled, it can't perish, it can't be defamed, it can't be hurt or taken away by you. It is reserved for you. And what is truly good in your life cannot be taken away. But lastly, because the best things are yet to come. Because the good things will turn out for good, because the good things cannot be taken, and because the best things are yet to come. And let me leave you with the words of... The tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe every tear away from their eyes, and there shall be no longer any death. There shall no longer be any more or crying or pain, because the first things have passed away. For the Christian, there's no reason to wish for a different life. You already have one. Your life hidden in Christ. And the best things are still ahead of us.
We fix our eyes on that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. For those of us this morning who truly do know that, and we pray that you would um, chase away our unbelief, our disbelief. Help us to trust you with our lives. For those of us this morning who don't know you, we pray that you would bring us to yourself, that you're spec in, and give us life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.